A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The Old Testament reading is written in the 43rd chapter of Isaiah, verses 1 to 3, and resuming with verses 10 to 13. Hear the word of the Lord. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? Here ends the Old Testament reading. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. Prior to her Christian husband being released from prison in Iran, Mahin feared that she might be arrested as well. And so she prayed. She prayed earnestly to God. She said, Dear Lord, I am not ready to go into solitary confinement because of my Christian faith. It's such a closed and dirty environment. You know, Lord, I was born and brought up in a wealthy family. I've had a comfortable life. Please don't test me now beyond my ability. She told God that she wouldn't be able to handle being arrested. She mentioned to God her fear that she might give away the names of all of the other believers in the house church. She might even deny Jesus before the police. Three days later, the Iranian secret police knocked at her door. She prayed to God, God, I've already asked you not to put me in this temptation. So whatever happens, Lord... It's not my fault, because I already told you that I am not a strong person. I'm not a strong Christian. I can't stand against these security people. I can't tolerate persecution. In much of the world today, it's costly to follow Jesus. It's costly to be a Christian. The revelation, the apocalypse, the unveiling that the Apostle John saw in the first century was a message to Christians like Mahin in the midst of religious persecution. 
if you happen to live in the United States in the early 21st century, you're not likely to experience the horrors faced by some of those early Christians, the horrors faced by many Christians elsewhere in the world today. John himself says in the passage we're going to read that he was in exile on the island of Patmos. That was a Roman penal colony. He himself was suffering persecution and and others among those early Christians in those first centuries of the Christian era would find themselves impaled on sticks or crucified or drawn and quartered, beheaded, tortured, burned alive for their faith. They would be sewn inside of animal skins and thrown to wild animals to tear apart while thousands of people cheered on from the bleachers in delight and joy. These Christians could hear the approaching hoofbeats of death. And Jesus saw their fate, and he sought to strengthen those Christians for what lay ahead. He wanted to show them something. He wanted to show them something beautiful. He wanted to show them something real. He wanted to show them something incredibly powerful, something that would sustain them and empower them to face torture, separation, and death head-on and unflinching, something so amazing, so splendid, so beautiful that it would give them power that no one else had. I want you to see the beauty of this book of Revelation, this last book of the Bible. I want you to see its beauty because this first chapter of Revelation was written for their sake, but it was also written for your sake, that your soul might come alive and prosper because Jesus showed them something. What did he show them? We'll look at Revelation chapter 1. In your pew Bible, we're on page 1913 if you want to read Read along there. Follow along as I read. This is Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. The Word of God. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, that's the day the Lord rose, the first day of the week when the early Christians worshipped Sunday. On the Lord's day, he says, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe that reached down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. And his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me, 
And he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. What do we see? What did John see? We see a Jesus here whom we as God's people had known all along for centuries. All these details in this description of Jesus in heaven, all of these details are drawn from the Hebrew scriptures, what we Christians call our Old Testament, the Jewish Bible. First of all, it's one like a son of man. That's the phrase, again, from Daniel 7, uh, that, that Daniel saw in the throne room of heaven when he saw the Lord. He saw one like a son of man whose rule would be forever, whose kingdom would never end. And, and it's specified here that this one like a son of man, Jesus, has hair that is white like wool. In that vision from Daniel 7, it was the Lord himself, the ancient of days, who had hair that was white like wool. John is putting this together here. He's seeing that the Son of Man is himself the Ancient of Days, that Jesus is himself Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that Jesus is the Lord who created the earth and heavens, that Jesus himself is the one with the hair that is white like wool, that he is himself the Ancient of Days. This is all pointing the identity of Jesus, the Jesus that they had known and followed in Palestine, the Jesus that they had begun worshiping at that time. This Jesus was more than human. He is divine. He had always been the Redeemer of Israel. He was the Lord. And then there's this bit about the furnace, the fiery furnace, the glowing, blazing furnace. John says that Jesus had feet like bronze that was glowing inside of a furnace. Where do you get that from? What's that drawn from? What is that image from? You may know the story of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. If you were raised in a church and you're still half young, you know the story of of Rakshak and Benny and the chocolate bunny and the chocolate factory, and they were forced to bow down to the giant chocolate bunny and sing the bunny song, but they wouldn't do it, and that's actually not what this is about. It's about three, three Jewish eunuchs who had been impressed into service of the king of Babylon. And they were compelled, like all servants, like all of the eunuchs, to bow down and worship an idol of a false god. And they knew that the Lord was their god, that there was no other, and that they would not bow down to an idol of some false god. They would not worship anyone except Yahweh, their god. And so they were thrown as punishment into a a furnace in which uh, it was hot enough to liquefy metal. We're talking thousands of degrees inside of this furnace. They were dropped down into it, and as they were dropped down into it, their their shadows could still be seen. They should have been incinerated immediately, And, and Nebuchadnezzar himself sees some fourth figure within that fiery furnace, one that he says is like a son of the gods. And he cries out to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and says, Are you there? Are you well? What's going on? And they say, yes, our God is protecting us. And in this vision, the Apostle John sees Jesus glowing, his feet glowing as in a burning furnace. 
And he knows that this is the one who has always been the Savior of Israel. This is the one, like a son of the gods, this is the one who is the Redeemer. Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And John's a smart man. He puts this together. He's a Jew. He understands the history here. And he sees that this is Jesus. But this is not Jesus as they saw in, in the manger at Christmas. This is Jesus as they saw on the mountaintop at the transfiguration. The one who shone with the glory of the Father. This was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His face shone with the glory and radiance of eternal God. A glance in the direction of God is like staring into the heart of the sun. He is projecting out the Shekinah glory of Yahweh. His face shone, it says. This Jesus had always been the redeemer of Israel. He had always been the rescuer. He had always been the Lord. And John puts this together, and it says that he drops at his feet as though dead. How big is your Jesus? How big is my Jesus? Is your Jesus big enough to make you fall flat on the ground with your face in the dirt? You think of how the disciples of Christ responded whenever they would glimpse his true identity, whenever there would be an unveiling of Christ, when Jesus calmed the storm, and not only did the storm stop, but all of the kinetic energy in the waves, massive amounts of energy, dissipated completely at his simple whispered command, and the the water was flat. And it says the disciples on the boat were terrified. And they they were afraid of the storm, but they were more afraid of Jesus. And they asked, what what manner of man is this? They didn't ask, who is this Jesus? They asked, what is he? What are you, Jesus? You are not just a guy. You are not just a rabbi. You are not just a prophet. You are something more. You are something inhuman or more than human. And they were terrified of him. Think of Peter. When, when the apostle Peter was called, he was a fisherman. Jesus has this massive, miraculous catch of fish. And you'd think Peter thinks, wow, I need to go into the business with this Jesus. He's going to make me a lot of money. He can just speak a word and suddenly the nets fill up. But no, it says he was terrified. And he said, Lord, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. If the thought of Christ Jesus, the Son of God, doesn't make your heart skip a beat, then you may not realize what it is that you're actually dealing with. When you look at the universe in which we live. Astronomers tell us that that time and space, it doesn't just extend infinitely in all directions. That time and space has edges. And they're edges that are constantly expanding. In fact, they're accelerating in their expansion, we're told. But it's not infinite. Space and time has edges. And our solar system is somewhere within these edges, as is our sun. And our planet circles that sun once every 365 days or so, uh, give or take a quarter of a day that we make up and a leap second once in a while. Uh, But it's massive. Our sun is massive. Our solar system is massive. And yet our sun is just one star. And within the edges of that universe, there are, we're told, about a billion trillion other stars. 
And the Bible says that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sustains that billion trillion stars and all of the space and all of the time, second by second, moment after moment by his powerful word, that all of that consists in him, that he is larger than all of that that he has made. When you consider one so immense, so powerful, this is not someone you invite into your life to be your personal assistant. All along, this one had been the redeemer of Israel. Scotty Smith compares this Jesus that we encounter in Revelation. He compares this Jesus to the Jesus he remembers learning about as a, as a child in Sunday school and VBS. Scotty Smith says this. He says, Jesus was usually depicted with a little lamb over his shoulder. He had brown hair with this brilliant sheen. We've got a picture. Do we got that first picture? Yeah. Uh, he says his hair had this brilliant sheen to it, and it was wavy, like the Breck girl in the shampoo commercials. We've got that one, too. Next slide. Um, yeah. He says this. He said, I had a hard time believing that this Jesus spent much time at a carpenter's bench, let alone outside in the Judean sun. That's good. Thank you. Another author says, Sunday school teachers all over America are teaching little children to hold the limp and clammy hands of this sissified Jesus. This is not the Jesus that we encounter in the book of Revelation. It's not the Jesus that we preach. Is your Jesus big enough to send you to the floor? John sees this grand unveiling of Christ in all of his glory and all of his power and all of his sovereign grace. It's a stunning vision. It's staggering. And it sends John lurching backwards and then down onto his face in unease at the presence of one so immense, so eternal, so overwhelming. It left him in shock on the ground. And yet Jesus didn't leave him there. Then Jesus reached down and he did something. He touched him. The hand of Jesus reached down and touched John. David Jeremiah speaks of the hands of Jesus. He says, oh, what gentle hands, never squeezing too hard, touching too roughly, or overzealously slapping another's back. And what powerful hands, the trace of a single finger could restore sight to the blind could bring life to the dead, heal a leper's skin, or lift a suffering soul from life's dust. And what wounded hands. They bore the scars that no lotion could heal and no oil could help. They were the hands of Jesus. The Gospels use the word hands, fingers, and touch nearly 200 times, and most of those words refer to Jesus. Jesus put out his hand and touched him. So Jesus touched her hand. Jesus went in and took her by the hand. Then Jesus touched their eyes. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand. Jesus came and touched them. Then little children were brought to Jesus that he might put his hands on them and pray. This Jesus was not a ghost. John saw this vision of the resurrected Christ the embodied Christ, fully human, fully God, the ancient of days, and it was Jesus. And Jesus touched him, and Jesus spoke to him, 
This was the Holy One of Israel, the Savior they'd known all along to see the glory of God in the Old Testament. To see God in his glory was certain death. And John falls to the ground as though dead, and yet he was not dead. How is he, how is he not dead? A voice instead speaks to him. It's the voice of Jesus. And he says, do not fear. Do not be afraid. How is it possible? We see here Jesus, whom we'd known all along as God's people, and we see that this Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has conquered death. He's pictured here as both priest and sacrifice. If you look again at the details, it says that he's wearing a robe with a golden sash. Those were the clothes of a Levitical priest. Jesus is here, the priest who offers a sacrifice to God to atone for sin. He offers the sacrifice, and yet it also says that he is the lamb. He has hair like wool, white. Uh, he is both the priest and the sacrifice, offering himself in your place. In the Old Testament, a priest would lay his hands on the sacrifice, on the lamb. And, and instead of sacrificing you, your guilt would be symbolically transferred to that lamb. And the lamb's throat would be slit. Its blood would fall to the ground and you would be forgiven. And here Jesus is offering himself as the priest And the sacrifice, what Jesus is saying by picturing himself in this way is that your guilt is atoned for, that you are now reconciled with God. You're good with God. You're right with him. Not because you're good or because you're right, because Jesus was right for you. Jesus was good for you. It's all of grace. It's all Christ's work. It's not a a performance treadmill that you have to run on in order to keep up and, and be good enough for God and make up for what you've done. The sacrifice is made. The debt is paid. It's 100% grace. Um, got another picture here. Have any of you heard of Stacy King? May have heard of Stacy King. Anybody heard of Stacy King? A few basketball players out there, uh, basketball fans. I, I heard another pastor tell the story of Stacy King. Uh, he was a former Chicago Bulls basketball player, and he was a teammate at the time of Michael Jordan. And after one game, Stacy King boasted, Michael Jordan and I scored 70 points today. And it was true. Because during the game, Michael Jordan had scored 69 points, and Stacy King had scored one point. And uh, he had a good teammate. And if you're a Christian, you and Jesus have done everything necessary to secure your eternal life, your forgiveness of all of your sin, your adoption into God's family as a son and an heir, the covering of all your shame, and your complete acceptance by God as your dad. Only, in this case, Jesus scored all 70 points. You and I didn't really score a point. We lost a lot of points and blundered quite a bit. But if you have Jesus, then you and Jesus have scored 70 points. And Jesus has done everything necessary to secure your favor with God. It's finished. Thank you. Uh, This is what Jesus is saying when he portrays himself with the robe and the sash and with the white woolly hair. He's saying, I'm the priest and I'm the sacrifice, and you're good with God now if you're a Christian, because I've made you good with God. Jesus is saying more than that. He's saying also that I have conquered death for you. Uh, Remember to whom Jesus is speaking. These are people at the end of the first century 
these early Christians are about to face the most brutal and repressive religious persecution the empire had seen to date. They're going to face the threat of death unless they renounce their Christian faith. Mothers are going to watch their sons and daughters be tortured, brutalized, crucified, beheaded, and thrown to lions. And Jesus is speaking to those mothers and those sons and those daughters and those dads who are going to face death. And he is saying, I was dead, and behold, I am alive. He's saying, I hold the keys of death and Hades, that is, the grave or hell. Think of Shakespeare's quote about death. He called it that undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. Death is a portal. Death is a doorway. Billions and billions of people throughout human history have all walked through that doorway, and none of them has come back out of the doorway. Not after lying dead for three days. Not after being in a tomb. Not after being buried for three days. Not when they were really dead. Not just mostly dead, but fully and completely and totally dead dead. Death is a doorway, and Jesus is saying, I'm the first person who's walking back out that doorway. And you know what I got in my hand? I'm holding on to the key. And you might have to pass through that doorway. Indeed, you will. Maybe through persecution sooner rather than later. But at some point, every one of us in this room will pass through that doorway into death, into that undiscovered country. And Jesus says, I got the door key. I'm going to let you out. You're not going to stay dead. You're not going to stay on the other side of that door. I'm going to unlock the door. I'm going to open the door. And I'm going to bring you out with me as I have risen from death itself. You too will rise. And you are going to live forever with me in a resurrected earth. Don't worry, he says. Do not fear. I was dead, but look at me now. Now I'm alive. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Picture those early Christians ready to face evil and injustice, ready to stare down the worst that the enemy can throw their way, ready to suffer and ready to die in service to Christ because they know who Jesus is. They know who he is. They know what he's done. They know where he's taken them. He was dead. Now he's alive. And now he's got the door key. He says, I am the living one the one who is himself, the way and the truth and the life, the author of life, living eternally, perfectly, and unendingly, I am alive. C.S. Lewis says there are better things ahead for the Christian than anything we leave behind. Jesus has already conquered death. Ray Cortis puts it this way. He says that Jesus, speaking to these early Christians, He's speaking to them, and really, he says, he's like Eisenhower. It's Eisenhower cabling his troops after D-Day. This is the era in which those early Christians found themselves. You know, in, in, the old, in the World War II reference, you know, once Allied troops had taken the beaches along France's western coast, and once millions and millions of American and British and Australian and Canadian and Free French troops had landed on the continent, the Nazis knew the war was already settled. There was a saying going among Nazi officers based in Paris. It said, enjoy the war because the peace is going to be terrible. They knew it was done. 
they knew it was finished. Certainly there was a massive mopping up operation, but uh, after D-Day, they knew the war was essentially over. The final outcome was no longer in doubt. They just had to play out this massive mop-up operation straight across the map of Europe. Uh, This is where we are right now. Jesus is showing us where things stand. It's like Eisenhower cabling his troops as the war draws to a close. The decisive battle has already been won. Jesus has come. He's gone to battle against death. He's emerged the victor. He has triumphed, and now the victory has been secured. It's going to be a very, very hard mop-up operation as we press into the heartland of a brutal but collapsing regime of death. But the outcome is certain. Death can't defeat you now. Jesus has conquered it. And lastly, where do we see Jesus right now? We see him in the midst of the churches. Look where John sees Jesus. He's not high up on a throne. He's not sitting atop some mountain or on top of a star, but he's standing in the middle of the lampstands. He's standing in the midst of the lampstands. John had told us at the beginning of the passage where Jesus was and that he was among the lampstands, but But at the end of this passage, Jesus himself drives it home by revealing what he calls the mystery. The mystery is this. The mystery is that the lampstands are the churches. Jesus is among the churches. Jesus is saying, you want to see me? You want to see my power? You want to see my resurrection hope? You're going to find me at church because I am in the midst of my people, my lampstands. read the story of a Christian boy in Iraq who shares his insight after his church had been bombed in Baghdad in 2010. The little boy writes this. He says, I always imagine having a special cape on my back like Superman wears as I run in and out of my sister's bedroom. The cape is gold with red print, just like the curtains in our dining room. I think of myself as a protector of the royal realm and my sister as as a princess to guard. Well, at least when she's not making me mad. He says, I used to play outside, but when the war started, we had to play inside all the time. When we do go outside, we have to take the car, but I help my dad check under the car first for bombs. We're always checking things around the house, and everyone is very nervous when we travel, even short trips around the city. We even have some suitcases stuffed with things in case we have to leave in the middle of the night. I wonder if any of my toys will fit in those bags. A really, really bad thing happened at our church, he writes, and I lost a lot of my friends. They were all killed. I didn't see it happen, but I heard most of the stories. I think lots of things will never be the same, that I need to take the role of protector and guardian of the realm. If I have this special cape, I can protect my family. At night, before my sister goes to bed, my parents pray with her. I can hear my sister now. She's praying, God, help that they don't bomb another church and that there are no car bombs, and please stop the blood. She's been very scared since the bad thing happened at church, and my mom often comes at her at night to pray with her again after nightmares. She didn't used to have those. Then my dad comes to pray for me. He tells me that Jesus will take care of us and that I shouldn't worry. 
He tells me that God even loves the people who hurt us. He tells me that Jesus himself is love and that that's something like my special cape, that Jesus is the one who protects us. Jesus is among the lampstands. Jesus is among the persecuted church. He's not up there in the sky. I mean, yes, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time with respect to his divinity and and his resurrected body is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, but that's not the point John is making. John is saying... Is showing Jesus speaking. And Jesus is saying, This is where I've been all along, right here among the churches. I'm perfect, I'm, I'm, I'm present right here among you, right in this place, right at this time. It's where I live. I am always with my bride, the church. I love my wife. I'm with my wife. If you want to find me, find my wife, find my bride find the church. And, and this isn't some generic universal church that's in view. These are specific congregations representing specific actual historical places, uh, churches in places like Philadelphia and Smyrna and Laodicea, seven churches, congregations that he's addressing in this, in this work. And he makes clear that, that these were, I mean, it's going to be pretty clear as we go forward, these are some pretty messed up churches. These are not ideal churches. These are churches where they don't have any programs. They don't have a children's ministry. The typical church, historians tell us, was probably a couple dozen people. They could have fit in some of your living rooms. These are tiny congregations, weak and persecuted, facing death. Uh, They don't have dynamic ministries. They weren't big and impressive, but they were organized churches, but not well organized. They had big sin problems. And Jesus is saying, that's where I am. I'm among those specific churches, real churches, churches with issues, churches that aren't perfect, churches that are problematic. It's not just really great churches that Jesus stands inside. He stands with the smallest, the weakest, the most unnoticed congregation, the little storefront church with the overly long name with the pastor who calls himself a prophet. Jesus is right there too. Real congregations. You want to find me, he says, I'm with my wife, Jesus, in the midst of the lampstand. It's astounding. You realize what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that the church is the hope of the world. That the organized church, real churches, with all their issues, with all their problems, they are the hope of the world and the only hope the world has because that is where Jesus is. And Jesus is the man of hope. He's saying that churches like ours are the hope of St. Louis, the only hope, a city of violence and racial injustice, of poverty and arrogance and difficulty and trouble and suffering. That this is the hope for St. Louis because this is where Jesus is. Jesus is in the midst of specific, actual, historical, real churches. Imagine, if you will, a community of people who aren't afraid of dying, who know that they've been rescued from death and hell and that it'll never be able to hold them. Imagine what it looks like when the resurrection hope takes hold, the freedom to love, unworried about what may befall us, the confidence, the joy, the lack of despair and negativity and despondency and cynicism. The light of the world is risen and it's bringing hope 
Imagine a community, a church captivated by that reality, the delight in every wonder and gift of God, the thankfulness at every gift he gives, even in the face of impending death, how happy such a people must be because they have Jesus right there in their midst, the church. It's the hope of the world because that's where Jesus is. Jesus says, I'll build my church and hell's gates are not going to prevail my church is going to knock them down and set captives free. It's the battle of our lives with nothing to stop us because Jesus has achieved the victory and he's here, right here, right now, in the midst of his church. That's where we're going. That's the hope of St. Louis. Going back to Mahim in Iran... She says this. She says, The police blindfolded me, and they took me into solitary confinement. She says, I was scared to death. I felt sick, and the place smelled horrible. They put me in a cell, and a few hours later, they brought me in for interrogation. And yet, at that moment, before those interrogators, I sensed the presence of the Spirit of God so strongly I felt that God's peace was coming down upon me. He was there with me, and I did not fear. As Mahin stood before the high official, she testified of her Christian faith. She says, it is an honor for me to talk to people about Jesus, and I will be very happy to talk to you about Jesus and about his salvation too. Like all people, you also need Jesus in your life. Without Jesus, we don't have any peace. Life is hopeless. Life is without purpose. But Jesus laid down his life for you too so that you can have his salvation and so that you will not perish. The official responded in anger and rage. Do you know what the consequence of this will be for you? You can't evangelize me. You are going to pay a very heavy price. On the third night, there was a knock at the door of her cell. He walked in. It was the official. Mahin was frightened. She was afraid that he had come to abuse her or perhaps to beat her up. But the official sat down next to her and he said to her, Don't be afraid of me. I need your prayers. When you shared about Jesus with me, It had such a powerful impact on my life. I need to be saved. I need Jesus in my life. I believe God has sent you to come to this prison so that you could share the salvation of Jesus with me. I am now completely aware of the fact that without Jesus Christ, I will be miserable and hopeless the rest of my life, and then I will perish. Please pray for me that I can be set free from this hell in which I live. And Mahin had a chance to share the good news about Jesus dying for sinners. For three hours they spoke about Christ and his salvation. And at the end, he turned from his sins and committed his life to Christ. The official testified that for the first time in his life, he experienced the real peace and love of God in his life. Mahin and her husband were shortly released, both of them from prison. And now they're friends with this official and his wife in secret. The wife of this official has also committed her life 
to following Jesus Christ as well. Friends, it's the power, the power of the resurrection hope of Jesus right there among his lampstands, right here in the midst of his church, right there in the midst of the persecuted church around the world, the church with Jesus, the hope for Iran, and the church of Jesus as the hope for St. Louis. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the hope of St. Louis. You are the hope of the world. So I pray now as we consecrate these elements to you, that you administer your gospel to us, that we would see Jesus and that we would come alive in him for the sake of our city and for the sake of the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.